0: I'm going to take you through the passage found in Mark chapter 11 as we go through our series together. And looking at the genius of Jesus. And one of the things that we've emphasized throughout this series together in Mark, we've tied a lot of what's written in Mark to the Old Testament. So we see the full picture of what God desires for us in scripture. And I want to say those images that we have tied uh, together into the Old Testament to show how God has worked his grand plan, orchestrated it together throughout the Bible uh, is really coming to a head in in the last few chapters, we're going to see in Mark. And for me, it's even uh, if, if you've enjoyed some of the things that you've learned in the series together, it becomes even more powerful, uh, I think, in these last chapters to see how God has divinely uh, appointed His purpose in history and invited us to be a part. And so you should know, if you've been with us by now, Mark gives some very simplistic messages and demonstrates that. So so in the beginning, he declares the kingdom of God. Jesus comes declaring his kingdom, and and then he demonstrates the kingdom. He invites us to be a part of the kingdom, and he tells us to come and die. Die to ourself, to live to what Christ has called us to in this world. God created you for his purpose. And when you discover the reason for for your existence within God's creation, God's plan, you truly live for the reason that you were designed. But first, you gotta recognize the need to die to self because in humanity, we are created to worship, but one of the things that we tend to worship is ourselves. And we we make idols of things of this world where God was intended to be the one in which we worship. It's when we die to self, we die to those things, we live to God that we live for that purpose in which God has created us. And so Jesus has come for that rescue He's died for our sins. We're going to see that in these pages ahead. He's offered us life in him and to live that life for the purpose which he has created, which is in his kingdom. And so we have seen this powerfully unfolding in in the chapters. And and again today, this chapter for me is an incredible chapter that I want it to just saturate not only in in my mind, but also embed itself in your heart. And, And what we've seen in these last couple of weeks is Jesus now making his journey into Jerusalem. He's pronounced the kingdom. He's now making his journey into Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 10, the disciples marked how bold it was. That Jesus just going straight forward into Jerusalem, not even looking back, not afraid of what awaits him. And the disciples know what's happened on the political landscape, religious landscape as it surrounded Jesus. And Jesus just continues to march forward into Jerusalem. If you know the gospels, you know the story of Christ, you know how it ends for Jesus. But we talked about together that Jesus' entire life was found in his death. That's why Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is symbolic towards the Passover celebration of Israel that started back in the time of Moses. When Moses brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, the night that they came out, they sacrificed a lamb. And it was a picture of of Jesus who would ultimately come to, to rescue those that are enslaved to sin, which is the entire world, to give us new life in him, that that lamb would ultimately come pay for our sin, that we could experience new life in him for all of eternity. And so Jesus is called the lamb of God. And with boldness, he goes to Jerusalem and he uses his life not only, not only to give us life, but to also demonstrate how to pursue him with this life. And in Mark chapter 11, it starts this specific story about Jesus as he journeys into Jerusalem. And if you know the story, Jesus is riding on the back of a donkey. Now I'm going to tell you, if you've probably read this story and, and, and anyone has taught you this, they've probably pointed out the humility that Christ has just riding on a donkey out of all the things you could ride. He's riding on a donkey. How humble is that? And, you know, I think there could be some humility taught in riding on the back of a donkey when you could, when you could take a white horse and, and soldiers armor going into battle. I mean, you could have that picture, but instead you choose a donkey. But I, I think if you go to this text and you look at Jesus riding on the back of a donkey and how humble that is, you are completely taking an interpretation that is exactly opposite to what this text says. Now let me explain. It says in Mark chapter 11, verse 1 As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them Go into the village opposite you, and immediately, immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing that? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. Let me stop there and say this. This is Jesus really showing his divinity. He didn't have to walk down the street and say, oh, there's a, there, there's a donkey. Please get that for me. It's a, it's a baby. It's a colt. Please get that for me. But Jesus already knows it's prepared. And so Jesus tells the disciples to go out. So they, they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, "Why are, why are you doing? Uh, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them, just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And what Jesus is doing here, I think, is the opposite, necessarily, of humility. I, I believe Christ's character is one of humbleness, because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Though being God, King of kings, Lord of lords, he came to this earth, and he served slaves to sin. So he himself became a servant, lower than servants, in order to serve us. So I want to argue the fact that Jesus was certainly humble in the way that he presented himself in this world. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 argues that for us. But at the same time, what Jesus is doing here is living out a prediction of what was declared about him in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 500 years previous to that, Zechariah 9.9, it says this, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout daughter Jerusalem, daughter Zion is Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so Jesus is, is riding on a donkey as it was predicted in Zechariah 9.9, that when the Messiah would come, he would come riding on a donkey. But here's the interesting thing about a donkey. If, if you read the Old Testament, when you see a donkey often discussed, it's leadership and royalty that ride on the back of a donkey. And that leader, that royalty would often ride on the back of a donkey or they would ride on the back of a donkey during a time of peace. And so Jesus is not only fulfilling what it says about him in, in Zechariah 9.9, 9, but he's also given a declaration or a demonstration of who he is and his identity. He's heading into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey without even having to say a word to declare to the people, your king has come to bring peace. And at the same time, taking the religious leaders off in the process to set his death in motion, could you imagine The boldness of Christ to have to give such a declaration uh, to the people around him that if, if this were not true, there would be no reason to do this. But Jesus, riding on the back of the donkey, isn't there just to demonstrate humility. He's giving a declaration about his very presence that he is royalty, he is king. And it's this time of peace. And the peace that he's offering is you and your relationship with God. And showing his willingness to put himself out as a sacrifice. Knowing that this would ultimately lead to his death, and here's the interesting part: was the reaction of the crowd. Many spread their coats in the road. And others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting "Hosanna," which means "Save us now." Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. In these verses, the crowd is, is chanting in, in Psalm chapter uh, 118 and verses 25 and 26. This, in verse 25, it says, salvation now. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here's the interesting part. I can't I can't really prove this, but but I, I know this portion of scripture is part of the Hallel, and the Hallel was a series of psalms that they would they would sing as they journeyed into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And so you can imagine this pilgrimage taking place where thousands of Jews are ascending up on Jerusalem and as they journey in the streets they know the Hillel, they know these passages in the Psalms and they're singing them together as they make their way up to the temple to present the lambs as a sacrifice and during this time they would take their sacrificial lambs for the Passover they would go to the temple and they would present them to the priest and the priest would have to scrutinize them to to make sure they were they were without blemish and so for 4 days those passages. The lambs would stay under the scrutiny to make sure they were pure for the sacrifice and as they're singing these psalms they get to psalm chapter 118 and as they turn right before they start to recite verse 25 they turn and they see their king coming on the back of a donkey offering peace And when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, his time into Jerusalem is not an accident because this is the very time in which the Jews would present their lamb in the temple under the scrutiny of the priests to demonstrate its purity. And Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem as the ultimate lamb at that exact moment. While the people are shouting the psalm and the declaration of who he is. You know, the crazy part about Psalm 118 is just three verses before in verse 22. It proclaims that he is the stone in which the builders reject. And so the same psalm in which they're using to declare exactly who Jesus is is also the same psalm to demonstrate that they're going to reject the Messiah who's coming. And it says in verse 11... Just, just as Jesus, or just as the Passover lamb would have been presented, that Jesus journeys to the temple. He entered Jerusalem, and he came into the temple as the Passover lamb. And you're going to see at the end of this chapter, and chapter 12 we'll tie this in next week, that Jesus is scrutinized by all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Just like the Passover lamb. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. I want you to think about this historically for a moment. The Jewish people in their mindset, when the Messiah comes, it's going to dominate over Rome. And the people are finally going to lead. And so you can imagine, you're chanting Psalm 118 and they're seeing Jesus and they're like, yeah, it's going to happen. And they're like following him into the temple and then Jesus just walks in the temple and says, I'm here. And he turns around and just walks right back out. They're like, wait a minute, where's the revolt? But Jesus is teaching something different about his kingdom. That his kingdom's first offered spiritually to us. But the king will physically return. But let me just make a point to this. You see in this passage of scripture, people rallying in the street for a cause. I think it's no different than our country today. We're all looking for hope. We rally in the street for different reasons, fighting for different causes, hoping to bring hope for those causes in which we're rallying against, retaliating against injustices. Sometimes to the extent that we spew hatred rhetoric towards the opposite side, which we oppose becoming just like them. I mean, in recent months within our own, <clears throat> our own country, we've seen... Mass movements and feminism and racism and religion and political positions. I don't know what the end goal is for all of them, maybe world dominance. No doubt that in each view, there's, there's something to hold to, which is representation of godliness. But you know, inevitably, in all causes, when they're not defined in their intentions and purposes... I find at some point someone tries to hijack them and push them in the wrong direction because ultimately I don't think we always have a compass by which directs us. But can I be honest and candid with you this morning? And someone that loves our country, loves people, I think for those that carry the torch of Feminism or are against racism, which the opposite of racism. I looked this up this week. The antonym is tolerance, which is a horrible word. We need to invent a better word than that. Like I tolerate your skin color. That's that's not that's not a very good word. But those that uh, oppose racism, those those are those are good causes. I, I think the equality of women and recognizing the beauty of God creating women for His purpose. Those are. Those can be good and, and godly things, but can I tell you feminism in itself isn't the end. And tolerance or anti-racism in itself isn't the end means. I, I think the best way to honor women is to pursue Jesus. And the best way to appreciate the different ethnic groups in the world isn't to be anti racist, it's it's Jesus. And in him we see where the causation of those movements can have an end. Because he gives the direction behind them. It's not, it's not about world dominance in that topic. It's about recognizing the beauty of who people are according to the way that God has designed us. I think as people, one of the things that we're going to look at at the end of this text is, is we're going to promote leadership and the way God has designed you in leadership. But let me just give you an example of how... How, when we neglect Jesus, how sometimes our worldviews can break in, break down if we just use those movements as an end to themselves apart from Christ. I mean, here, here's a, here's a, an example. If 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 someone's worldview is atheism, and by the way, we love everyone here. We have a truth that we hold to, but we love people here regardless of your worldview. But we're going to honor Jesus in our lives. But but as an, as a way of just an example, if your worldview is atheism, this is this is just me talking about an, an area I wrestle. Okay. I mean, the, the belief in, in atheism, if you, if you hold to a macro evolution, which means this primordial ooze to fish to man, and, and I see that same person fighting against racism in this world, I can't see how those worldviews fit together. Atheism against racism. And here's why. If you believe as people we've evolved from primordial ooze to fish to man, like your belief would also include the fact that humankind is evolving. And if humankind is still evolving, then there would be, in that understanding, a superior race. If not, one that would eventually emerge. And I think the undertones of that system leads to racism. But when you start with the identity of Jesus creating us in different ethnic groups for his glory, for his purpose, there's not multiple races in scripture. There's only one race, the human race. And God makes different ethnic groups to express the beauty of who he is under that. I I think that gives us a better appreciation for our identity as human beings rather than just to suggest that we're evolving. Because under that idea, one group would evolve more uh, superior than others. And I think that is the undertone of racism. And so that's why I say the basis of your identity in Jesus becomes central in how you pursue these injustices in the world. Because ultimately, our identity in him him is what shapes everything. Everything. And here we see the, these people rallying in the streets. They're looking for hope. And here we see in our country people rallying in the streets looking for hope. And they see in Jerusalem, marching down the street, their hope. But it's not just for Jerusalem, it's for you. And this Hallel in which they sing is, is an expression, not just for them, but for us in this land that's being scrutinized, not just for them, but for us that we could our shape our identity in this. Now I'm going to skip the next three verses and come back to it in a minute, but Jesus leaves. And then it tells us in verse 15, Jesus then goes back to the temple. It says in verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, if you were to see the temple today, it doesn't exist, but if if the temple Jesus was at was there in existence, you recognize the temple was segregated. There was a place for the women, a place for the men, a place for the priests, and there was a place for the Gentiles. And what's happening in this story that Jesus is sharing is that Jesus is going into the court of the Gentiles. And during especially celebration days, they would set up money exchanging places and places people could go to to buy uh, animals to sacrifice that were approved according to the priests. And when people would go into Jerusalem, they would gouge the prices of these items. And so this place that was intended for the Gentiles to gather around the temple to experience the glory of God through the the people of God, of which he has pointed for the Messiah to come, rather than have a place to go and gather and to experience this, they were shoved out for the purpose of of making money in Israel. And so Jesus says two things in this story. He says, one, that I wanted my house to be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And, and, And two, you've turned it into a den of robbers. And you see how they've turned it into a den of robbers by, by exchanging what was intended for the Gentiles to be a place to merchant, to, for merchandise and really gouging the prices to take advantage of people. Definitely a den of robbers. But I, I think the more central truth that Jesus is teaching here, while he's acknowledging what they're doing wrong, is what he desires for them to do right. And when you look at the temple in Jesus' day, it's important to recognize Jesus created a space for people who were just searching. And it was so important to Jesus for people to have that space that he's willing to go in chaotically with whip in hand and just beat people out of there. God loves the nations, God desires for people to, to, to know him. That's why he tabernacled in this world. I mean, Jesus said when you when you read in the in the Old Testament. God tells Moses to build the tabernacle. And tabernacle means the dwelling place of God. And then when you read in John chapter one, it tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and and the word was God. The same was in the beginning. And the word became flesh and get this, tabernacle among you. God desires to dwell among you. And Jesus is ticked when his people don't see the need of creating space for the world to gather and hear that message. That's when we get here on Sunday, that's why I repeatedly say, and hopefully you're maybe even sick of it if you've been here for a while, but when when I say that every soul that comes through our door is important. This is where Jesus went bananas in scripture. You see two pictures of of Jesus going Old Testament on people, right? In, in In the New Testament, in those two pictures, or when his people are not creating a space for people to gather and just hear the glory of who he is. How important it is for us to understand that God wants to tabernacle with you. That's why Jesus came. That's why he says in the New Testament, Paul says 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are the temple of God. It's no longer in a building. It's not just Jesus' presence, but now it's Jesus' presence in you. And so when you interact with this world, the presence of God is being made known. The glory of God is being made known in your life. And so when we gather on Sunday, when we rally as this community, this is the most important place to reflect the goodness of God and provide a space for people just to hear about God and be able to ask questions and learn and grow and see how this community loves one another, embraces one another. And by the way, you're invited to the cookout at one, right? And it's not just on Sunday, but it's Monday. And every day of the week. In fact, to to get this expression across of what God wants to do in you and through you by making you a temple to reflect his glory in the world, to provide the space, to invite the nations before you to demonstrate the goodness of, of God. This is what John said in his book, 1 John 4, 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, He is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. You cannot say I love God and hate people. It does not compute because that's who Jesus came for. And if you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. And so your relationship to the world, your relationship to those around you, your neighbor who you may not even know, or the people that are close to you, it will directly affect your relationship with God. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, husbands, love your wives or your prayers will be hindered. That's why Ephesians in chapter 6, it talks about the relationship between parent and child. That's why in Matthew chapter five, verse 23, Jesus says this, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar, be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. It's why in Romans 13, they talk about political leaders and being under authority and respecting those in authority. It's why in Romans 12, verse 20, Paul says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You realize Jesus did that for us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Your relationship to this world directly affects your relationship with God. That's why Jesus was ticked when he went into the temple. There was no space made, no concern for the world, no love for those around them. Their interest was self. And sometimes we look at verses like that and we say, You know, I'm good. I'm good. I don't do anything bad. But you know the truth is, it, it may not be that you don't do anything bad, but you may not be doing anything at all. <laughs> and the reality is, is that Jesus is shaping you for a purpose. And sometimes Christians can be the best at being complacent butt-sitters. But what Jesus is saying in this passage is, stop sitting on your butt. God doesn't want you to be a spectator but a participator. That's why the temple of God dwells in you. I mean, if the story that we're sharing today, I mean, it's an incredible story. You think about it. Jesus turning into Jerusalem at the exact time when the Passover lamb and they're, they're singing the Hallel, the, the same passage that promotes the glory of who Christ is. If that story is true, why not participate? Why would you sit? As a church, we try not to complicate the way we serve God together we don't think it needs to be complicated in fact sometimes churches make it too complicated but following Jesus is simple it is it's just drawing near to him and as that relationship becomes natural in your life you share it it's when it's unnatural that you fumble through it and it's difficult it's not to say everyone always feels prepared to talk about Jesus Sometimes we recognize that our relationship with Jesus is a sacred thing and we want to treat it with the utmost respect. And so we intimidate our own self sometimes in that. As a church, we don't want to make things complicated. We try to make it simple. And so if you've been at ABC for any amount of time or you're new here, let me just explain how, how things go for us as a church. We, we do what we call breathe in, breathe out. In, 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 the, in the fall to the spring, we breathe in, in discipleship and growing in community. In the summertime, we breathe out. And so we end most of our community groups and we do evangelism. So in the summertime, it's all outreach, outward focus, get beyond this building, do things for the Lord in the community. And then during the fall, when the snow comes and everyone hunkers down and hides, we get deeper in community with one another. In fact, you're going to see over the next couple of weeks, a couple, couple of inserts in our bulletin come to you. One's, one's there today. It's called join a team and join a group join a team is about serving the Lord. If you want to help us serve on Sunday, there's a way to do that. If you want to serve beyond that, we, that's not in the bulletin today, but there, we, we need people to serve, to understand what God's called us to in the world and, and do that. And so if you want to join a team, grab a bulletin, a, fill that out. And the other, the other part is connection, be connected. And we have community groups that meet throughout this area. And, and let me, let me just tell you in a, honesty. I love Sundays. This is a great time for us to rally in the Lord together, but it's difficult to use your gifts to serve when you're sitting in rows. And there are places to serve, but it's difficult to do that when everyone's just facing me. Hi, hi. (laughs) It's when you get in circles and you understand what's going on in each other's lives, that you can encourage one another in the Lord and use your gifts to help one another. And that's what our groups give us opportunity to do. I'm not saying it's the only way to serve God. I'm just saying we just want some clear paths to be able to do that because God's created you for that purpose to make the glory of who he is made known in your life. But here's the reality. As you were created to lead, and you think all the way back into Genesis when God made us, he said to Adam and Eve, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he made them both male and female. And he said to them in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That says lead. Now, when I talk about lead, I'm not just saying you go out in this world and you're like, I'm a leader because Jesus said so. I'm saying lead according to the way Jesus defines leadership. So the way that you understand what it means to lead is to get to know Jesus and walk with him because we're not just promoting, you know, whatever group, like I said a minute ago, you're not promoting whatever group for the sake of the group but the ultimate thing that defines us in all of this, the one that gives us purpose, meaning value is Christ himself. And so unless that, that vision ultimately drives in him, the reason for, for leading or leading anything is nil because what God calls us to do is lead in him. And so when God created you, he created you to lead. And sometimes that sounds intimidating. Now, if you look in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, after Jesus walked to the temple, he then leaves and he's like, I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat off this tree. And he walks over the tree and the tree is not bearing fruit. And Jesus curses the tree. And then Jesus goes to the temple and he rips it to pieces and tells everyone to get out. And I love people and provide space for them and lead the way I called you, called you to lead. And as they're leaving the temple, Peter notices that the tree in which Jesus cursed is now dead. Now that picture is a a shadow of Israel in these moments. Because by and large, the people of Israel are rejecting God, and he's showing that they're they're dead on the inside. But then in this remark, Jesus teaches us about leadership. This is where Peter said, being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And rather than just simply just dialoguing over how bad it is that Jesus that I'm being rejected, or Jesus could have said that I'm, you know, this is horrible, I'm being rejected. Jesus then looks at Peter and he tells him how to lead. You know, in, in the midst of your world today, you can look around at everything that you don't like and complain about it, or you can do something. And you know the ultimate goal for which you do it. And so the first thing that Jesus teaches us about in leadership is how to lead with humility. Now let, me, let me show you how. He says this in verse 22. Jesus answered them, saying to them, have faith in God. The ultimate thing that defines your leadership, have faith in God. I know leading can sometimes be intimidating. Have faith in God. Everyone in this room is created to make an impact for the Lord somewhere, whether it be in your home or at work, friends, family. And Jesus is saying the thing that drives us, have faith in God. Even if it's intimidating, have faith in God. And this is why. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted. Now this passage isn't saying, pray for your Rolls Royce, you're going to get it. Okay, first, first John four talks about praying according to God's will. This is in context of Jesus's kingdom, praying according to what Jesus wants to accomplish in in his kingdom. But Jesus compares us living in him as saying to this mountain, move and it's cast away. We say this often. We've said this about the faith of the mustard seed, but I just want to remind you of this when it comes to leadership, your ability to do do anything for Jesus in this world has nothing to do with your strength, but everything to do with his strength working through you. Meaning you don't have the ability to change hearts. Jesus is the one that transforms hearts. You're just the agent in which God uses to express his glory to work on the hearts of others. But it's God who ultimately transforms hearts. If you ever get around someone and try to change their heart, they're going to call you a nag. That's not what you want to do. You don't want to nag people to Jesus because that does not work. You want to love on people the way Jesus would love on people and pray for people the way Jesus would want you to pray for people and see how God works in their lives. But never nag someone. In fact, Proverbs has a few statements on that. It says, according to the husband and wife, that a man would rather live in a house with a leaking roof than in a home with a nagging wife. So don't, don't nag. Nag is not, that's not healthy. What he's recognizing in our lives is his power. And what I say to you this morning is this. It's not the depth of your faith that makes you such a great leader, but the object of your faith. It's not the depth of your faith that has the power, but the object of your faith. Meaning if you're willing to surrender yourself to Christ and just lead, no matter how small you feel, the power in that is not in you, but in him. And that's why Jesus is looking at Peter in the midst of of this. He's just saying, listen, in order to lead the way that I've called you to lead, recognizing that God has called you to lead, it's not the depth of your faith, but the object of your faith. Like you don't have the ability to move a mountain. Jesus does. And God wants to work according to his kingdom in which he came to establish. And then he says this. Whenever you stand praying, because you should pray knowing that the power comes from God. But whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you of your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Let me give you what I think is being said here true Christians forgive because we understand what we've been forgiven in Christ. No one's going to ever sacrifice more in forgiving than Jesus. And if you follow Jesus and you want to demonstrate Jesus, true followers of Jesus forgive. Jesus forgave so much and while you were an enemy of God, when you've blasphemed and cursed and turned from him, He still died for you. Now I think what this passage is also recognizing is relationship. Notice it says father. I think it's written to those that have put their trust in Jesus. And what it's saying is your relationship to people in this world will directly affect your relationship with God. They're not isolated from one another. And if you want to experience a healthy relationship with your father, demonstrate what the Lord came to do in this world by forgiving others. Because your relationship and how you live it out in this world will reflect your relationship with him. Meaning when you see people promoting a cause in this world which ticks you off, don't in vengeance and anger and a lack of unforgiveness hate them back. Certainly stand for truth. Stand for what's right. And while they are enemies, Love them as Jesus would love. Hate building on hate will never promote a changing of a heart. Only those bold enough and confident in who they are in Jesus and loving those who are still enemies of God. That's what promotes who Christ is. And so when it comes to leading, as God calls us to lead, yeah, it can look scary, yeah, it can seem impossible but you serve a God who moves mountains. And the emphasis isn't about you. It's never been about you. It's about his glory. It's not the depth of your faith. Sometimes when we take steps, we just feel like we're walking on thin ice. But it's the object of our faith. And when we live our lives that way, the thing that sometimes causes causes us the most pain is our relationships with others but it's in living out forgiveness that healing begins. I hope as we've seen this story of Mark over the course of the summer, you're beginning to find clarity in Jesus if you haven't already. And what we're doing in our lives is we're lining up the bullseye for which God called us to to live in this world from, this, from discipleship to, to making direct decisions in Christ, more than just persuasion in Jesus, but deep rooted conviction and our identity in him, not to sit on a fence, but to see this incredible story unfolding in our lives intended to transform your life in the, in the Lord and the way you interact in this world. Don't be a dead tree. Embrace the lamb. To let God move mountains in your life and impact the relationships of those around you. To look at this cause in which Christ has set before us and run to him. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.